I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Buy my bread, buy my bread, fresh fish for sale, fresh fish for sale. Heavy hammer, heavy hammer, heavy hammer in the blacksmith's forge. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. Now, I'm so sorry if this sounds like I'm recording inside a public toilet. Ah, the a litter of tiny birdsong outside. A little, ah, the cries of young children. Well, the truth is, I'm on my holidays. And so uh, this is the quietest room in the house, which is to say it's not quiet at all. So forgive me if this sounds a little less than optimal for quiet recording, but you know, that's the summer for you. I'm in Greece. There I've said it. And not in the middle of that appalling heat cyclone that everywhere else in the Southern Europe seems to be suffering from. I'm here with friend of the podcast, Jez Butterworth. Uh, writer of Jerusalem and The Ferryman, and Laura Donnelly, his muse and leading actress for his last three plays, The River, The Ferryman, and a new one that they've got coming out at the end of the year. It's incredibly exciting. I have to say, Greece is lovely, sure. But being with them, (laughs) being with them while they're in this sort of pre-performance moment together. Jez has just written this play and Laura's about to star in it. It just is so exciting to feel them just testing the springiness of the diving board before they jump in. So great. Now, on to my guest this week. My guest this week is an actor, writer, producer, novelist, not really a comedian, as he as he was a pain to point out, but a comic actor. He's everything. He's essentially everything. He is Mark Gatiss, one quarter of the legendary uh, sort of macabre comedy group, The League of Gentlemen. By the way, The League now seem like absolute prophets, don't they? If you don't know The League of Gentlemen, um, their most famous creation centered around a fictional town called Royston Vasey. And one of the catchphrases, which feels like such a presentiment of Brexit, was a couple called called Edward and Tubbs, who used to run this terrifying shop. And they would say to people, this is a local shop for local people. There's nothing for you here. And I just feel like they absolutely understood what was coming. Yes, Mark Gatiss. I mean, come on. He's... he's He's completely woven into the fabric of the new iteration of Doctor, or the modern iteration of Doctor Who. He writes and produces and directs and acts in it. He's the co-creator of Benedict Cumberbatch's uh, new re-up of Sherlock. He was in Game of Thrones. He was in the new Mission Impossible movie. He's such an incredible engine of productivity and invention that, quite frankly, it makes me feel like having a little bit of a weep. But he loves the theatre, always has. Um, And even if Basil Brush in pantomime wasn't enough to distract him from a new episode of Doctor Who on the telly when he was a little lad, he he keeps coming back to the stage, which is sort of a miracle in itself, considering all he has going on. We met in July of this year in his dressing room at the National Theatre. Ah, for an actor walking in through the stage door of the National Theatre on the South Bank in London feels like perhaps the most special experience of a stage door. I did it once. 
And Mark he was doing it at the time. He was starring in, uh, playing a character feels too small a word for what he was doing. He was breathing out. No, he was reincarnating himself as John Gielgud in Jack Thorne's new play, The Motive of the Q, directed by Sam Mendes. We'll tell you about the play during the chat. But Mark was astonishing in it. And as you'll hear, his little dressing room in that amazing building was exactly where he wanted to be. Now, I should say that this is quite a Brit-centric episode for any of my listeners that uh, are further afield than than Britain. Um, there's lots of references to legendary British TV shows of a certain vintage, Steptoe and Son, Porridge, uh, Rising Damp, <laughs> the actor Robert Asquith, and you don't need to know what they are. They just, they were all wonderful works and they created the sort of landscape of this amazing man's imagination. So, oh, and another quintessential Englishman is referenced at the very end of our chat. When Mark mentions Simo, he's talking about my great old friend and magnificent actor, Michael Simpkins, who he directed in the West End. He just directed him in a play called The Unfriend that we talk about. All right, here he is. Stage door, Johnny Johnny Company. Company. This is your Act Act One Beginners call. call. Mr. Gatiss and Mr. Mr. Cake to the the stage, stage, please. please. This This is is your your beginners. beginners. Have a great great show. show. So your play, the play that you're doing right now. Yes, sitting in the dressing room that you will be going to do two of these shows today is The Moat in the Queue. Yes. By Jack Thorpe. Directed by Susan Mendes. Dame Sam. Yes, Sam. And we're sitting in your dressing room at the National Theatre. Famously bordering onto the courtyard where you just confirmed to me before we were running, well, this is still, still happens. That on opening nights, everyone leans out of the window in all the other shows because there are three auditoria and claps for an encouragement. Yes. For the cast that is opening. Yeah. It's very moving. It's so, it's one of those wonderfully silly things. It started, I know this, it started with Ralph Richardson used to set a rocket off on the roof and it's transmogrified over the years into this window banging. Everyone who comes knows or has heard some Chinese whispers version, as I was saying. There's also a confusion. People they don't know whether it's opening night or first night or last night. Sometimes you get a random banging and someone's, <laughs> someone's doing it on their own. But it, you, it's just, there's something so lovely. And also about, you know, when we started, uh, Dixon and Daughters was opening and, you know, and we banged for them. And then when it was our turn, and it was just, there's the solidarity of it is just lovely. And also when it's, when it's full, there are three shows going on. There's such a sense of, it reminds me, in my head, it's like the, well, the Universal Canteen in the 30s where, you know, Boris Karloff was sitting next to Clark Gable or something like that. It does have a slight prison yard. Mm. Just, it's the famously brutalist architecture at the National Theatre. And so there's a sense that it's also a sort of scene from Porridge while someone is going off to do some solitary. Well, it's strange. I, um, I was put into a dressing room on the ground floor and I rarely do this but I, I requested to move because I've the two previous occasions I've worked here I was on the second floor and I it just I'm always on the second floor and I, isn't that where they put me but also I was anticipating the summer and I was right because the ground floor and very dingy so I I just thought I'd make an escape up to here they put you on the ground floor so you could be closer to the stage. Yes, they're, they're afraid we'll run away. <laughs> no, it's the side of your seniority. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Well, because I can't, can't move very quickly. <laughs> do you know that? It's a strange thing. The other day, I've, there's a scene in the play where it's when I do uh, the, the ghost uh, and I have to walk down sort of just in darkness with one light on me. And I realized early on that I couldn't see my feet. And in a very strange way, it's slightly... Discombobulated. I was sort of heading towards the edge of the stage and thought, I don't really know where I'm going. <laughs> Mark, you're so incredibly generous to do this, particularly as you are coming to the end of this run here at the National. Am I right? Yes, we have finish on Saturday. Yes, we've got six more. Then you're going to go to the West End mm. to transfer. How do you feel about it? Great, delighted. I mean, delighted. Uh, he's coming. <laughs> um, uh, well, it's been the show has been an extraordinary success and it's just I don't know what the right words to choose without sounding too wanky but it's kind of humbling. The, the response has been overwhelming 
and so lovely. And the strange thing is when when I when Sam sent me this during lockdown, and we did a workshop in 2020, and the show is about why we love theatre and why we do it, you know. And it, it felt like just what we needed, you know. And right. that's what it seems to have become, you know. People are, I've lost count of people who've said it's sort of really given them inspiration or restored their faith and all these. It's fantastic. Uh, and, be, and because it's a, a story about the struggle to put something on yeah. and then all the clashing personalities and it's about it's about mortality, it's about reputation, it's about fathers and sons as well as everything else. So I'm amazed at how people have responded. It's just lovely and it's a, it's a treat to do. It's a, it's a privilege really. So I'm very glad we're carrying on. Um, I mean, I have no idea how it'll feel in the West End. It'll be very, very sad to finish here. It's been very special. And because Dear England is on at the moment as well, which is a big hit too, and and the whole building is kind of humming with positive energy. It's a lovely thing. There's something about the summer as well, you know. So it's been great. And Ian, we'll see what the West End makes of it. Scale-wise, it'll have to come down a bit. Yeah, really good eat. The Coward. Not the Gilgun though, ridiculous. Yes, to the branding. Um, we should say to anybody who doesn't know about the play, it is about the 1964 production, Broadway production, Hamlet, directed by the character you play, Sir Joel Gilbert, uh, starring Richard Burt. And it's about, as you said, all those different themes, but the, the sort of minutiae, really, of a rehearsal, line to get this superstar directed by the superstar actor also a director you know the, the difficulties of combining their styles or their interpretation of this extraordinary play and so it's a real under the bonnet of the theater process right do you think that's something that has sort of surprised people seeing what we do everyone sees the, the final yes I, result. I, I one of the things that i found um, quite moving about it and also unexpected is um, my my brother uh, who is, is very very supportive he always comes to see everything I do and I did think this might be a bit rarefied for him but he totally loved it he's a postman the idea even of doing things a couple of times was sort of revelatory I love that though because because you just take it for granted but the idea that you know have another go and then Burton does the whole speech differently and and, uh, you know, a model box or this is a rehearsal room, this is a table read and things like that that you just take for granted. And it is very interesting. As you say, it's the sort of, it's it's lifting the curtain, isn't it? And you see behind the scenes. So that's very interesting. But also just the, I suppose, you know, it's not picking up bricks, but just the the, the, the difficulty of that. Of, and, and for Gilgood trying, who is the most famous Hamlet of his generation before Olivier's film, trying to wrestle this this loose cannon superstar into shape. And as he says, you know, I, I knew his Hamlet wouldn't be one that interested me. He's a tremendous actor, but not a Hamlet. But he has, so he has to give him, they have to come up with an idea. That's what it is. Is that what you're quoting from the play? Yes. He says that, I knew his Hamlet wouldn't interest me. I knew his Hamlet would not be one that interested me. Tremendous actor. Not a Hamlet, you <laughs> see. But that was the thing. And um, they were very close. Uh, Burton hero worship. Gilgood, they worked together. Gilgood cast him in The Ladies Not for Burning, which was his first great success. Oxford, did they do? Yes, yes, they did something. Uh, uh, Burton did something at uh, Oxford, I can remember. But they, um, and I think he asked Gilgood to do it, thinking he was going to be a bit of a pushover. Right, right. And then he was. Because it's very interesting. Burton has only just married Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. So they're sort of, yeah. Yeah, it's hard for people to understand that, but the most famous people... Oh, they, they had to they had to close blocks and blocks around the theatre every night because people thought they, she'd, she'd be there and they would see. It was extraordinary. Yeah. And Gilgood is rather a sort of professional doldrum. Yeah. He's not that shining star of the classical theatre. Gilgood was, de- was yesterday's man, and that's what Burton struggles with, is that, you know, you, this is, you were brilliant, but that's, that's not what I want to do. And so it's the tension between that, really. And, you know, Liz Taylor sort of successfully, well, in our play anyway, successfully predicts that his time will come again, which it does, actually. Yeah. One thing that's very exciting about him is that he just carried on experimenting. He really was. There's a sort of autobiography, which is actually interviews sort of connected together. And 
the last line of it is um, something like, for some theatre has been a career, for me it has been a life. And it, he really inhabited theatre more than anything, even though he had a late successful film career. But he was constantly pushing, you know, all the stuff of Peter Brook and then Pinter and Alan Bennett and uh, David Storey. It's really interesting. I mean, for, for, for a man of his vintage... I wasn't going to start by talking about this one, but now we're in it, and so we can't sort of, I can't stop. I'm going to release the gaff. Mark, I cannot tell you. It was like maybe the greatest theatrical inhabitation I've ever seen on that stage. When you just did that bit of me, it really is this extraordinary, preternaturally vivid way. I never saw him on stage, but I feel like last week when I came to see your show, I absolutely did. You're very kind. <laughs> it's a sort of, you can imagine, the real Gil Good sort of just getting a little of the boat, it. It's not nothing to do this over and over again. Mm. Does it take its toll? How do you feel as you're coming to the end of this run of the National? How's your brain? How's your body? That's a very good question. I, I am tired. It's a strange thing. You know, it's like you on a long run or a longish run, you, you start to. I was talking to a couple of the other cast members about this how you, you get you, your mind starts playing strange tricks with you. You suddenly develop a Beecher's Brook about one scene that was never a problem. Yeah. What's so, Beecher's Brook? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> no, but it shifts, it shifts, it changes, and you just go, that's fine. What was I worried about? And we had a little break, weirdly, for building work. Because rep stopped after COVID here, so it's eight shows straight through, like the West End. But we had a little break, and I just ran the show in my head every other day. And then when we came back for the bring back, we had a full dress rehearsal, and it was fantastically relaxed. And every time I think, well, that that's what you want, you know. And the, there have been times in this run when I felt so relaxed on stage. I, there was one night I actually I was I was jabbing my thumbnail into my hand in my pocket because I felt nothing at all. Nothing. And I was actually, I wanted to feel something, you know. All right, Mark, let's go back. Do you remember when you first went to the theatre? It would be Panto, I think. Right. Like most people. But um, Darlington Civic Theatre, now restored to the Hippodrome, the home of the most successful regional theatre in the country. Really? I used to go to a lot. Do you remember, was it a Panto that particularly stuck out or they all blended into one? I have some, but I can't remember if it was the first. There, uh, I remember seeing Biggins as Mother Goose. Biggins. Uh, That's as good as it gets. But the one I really remember, and I can tell you everything about this one because it's seared in my memory, is Basil and the Beanstalk. Basil Brush and the Beanstalk. Sunderland Empire, 1976. And the reason I remember it so vividly is my mum promised me we'd get home in time to see Doctor Who. Uh, I remember I had my dad's old watch and I remember looking at the time during Basil and the Beanstalk and when we came out, I said, are we going to get back in time? And she just bit her lip. And it was the Brain of Morbius episode four. And I was beside myself. Luckily, it was repeated in the summer. Oh, sorry. Good. But um, it's, it's funny. It's always trauma, isn't it? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's <trauma>. always trauma. <laughs> Basil Brush couldn't distract you. Even Basil, who I adore. Sure. Who didn't love Basil Brush. But no, it was always good. a book. number 30. <laughs> <laughs> It was always about Doctor Who, even at that age. Yeah. 1976, the famously hot summer of 1976. I don't remember. It wouldn't uh, have affected Well, it was Panto, so it must have been the winter. But it was... Uh, yes, yes, you're right. So were you a regular theatre girl? Was, was theatre part of your upbringing? Going no, to it was, we went to... I mean, certainly, certainly went to Panto's and... Gosh, I really... That's a very good question. I remember, we, I remember being on stage at Darlington Civic... When we were at a primary school, we, we did a, a workshop about the Great Fire of London. But yeah, I'd never thought of this. The first play. I went a lot in my teens. I think we knew someone who had worked at the box office. So I remember seeing a run of plays. And the, the, the play that really stayed with me, and I must have been 13 or 14, was The Resistible Rise of Arturo Uli with Robin Asquith. Robin Asquith. And he was really, really... From the confessions yeah, of... He was superb. Was he? He was superb. And I have... Talked to him about it on Twitter since. And the other day, I bumped into David Haig, and out of nowhere, he said, um, well, I did Arturo Uli with Robin Asquith. I said, I saw it. I saw it. <laughs> it 
It was great, and it really affected me. That particularly at the end when he tears his moustache on yeah. the, the bitch that bought him is in heat again. Not it really did something. Yeah. That's the one I really remember. Gosh, how old were, would you have been then? About fourteen, I think. I yes. saw Anthony Quayle and Bernard Breslau in The Devil's Disciple. Did you? What a pairing! Yeah, very. I was very excited. But yeah, in my teens, I went an awful lot, and uh, and, uh, and that didn't clash with your confirmed. TV addiction at that point because you getting home in time for Doctor Who was very important. You you didn't favour the screen over the stage. You no, know, I was obsessed but, with television. I really was. Right, but I loved I loved going to the theatres, and I, I I guess obviously I just harboured ambitions of getting on there one day. But yeah. it was it was much like we certainly had no tradition in the family. I saw Gambon's Lear uh, in Newcastle. In it was in the days that. The RSC would tour up there. The, the Stratford Triangle. Yeah. It was an amazing thing, that. Its loss is diminishes everyone. It was such a clever idea. Talk, all this talk about levelling up and everything. But that's what they used to do. Mm. I saw uh, Alan Howard's Coriolanus. Gosh, did you? And uh, and it was just that thing of like, it felt, it's something I, I often think about and I, I find it very, it's a particular button that's pressed. It, it, it's uh, when you see a black and white picture, and I call it the back of the Matthew in. And <laughs> although they were, they were, it was like, they were like holy things to me. Really? You'd be a picture of Robert Lindsay actually as Hamlet sitting barefoot on the stage, or Peter Brook directing, look, looking like you know, the, and a group of actors looking up at him like he was a wizard. And that sort of man, there's a magic to the idea that, that the RSC were, were coming to Newcastle and, and trailing all these clouds of glory, you know. Yes, I went up there with the RSC and it was magical, you're right. And it, and it did make the whole empire of that theatre company feel large. Yeah, yeah. Inclusive, more inclusive anyway. Yeah, it was special. I also think that wonderful episode of Yes Minister when Jim Hacker is going to make his speech about the national... No, that's not, sorry, sorry. John Bird is the, is the artist director of the National, and he's going to make a very critical speech about the government. That's right. That's right. So they sort of undermine him by proposing that they're going to knock this building down, sell off the land, and then make it a truly national theatre by moving it around the country. And, of course, John Bird is horrified, so he modifies his speech. Every time I stumble across that episode, I think, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> not the demolition. But that's what that sort of, um, that's what the Stratford thing used to be about. It was like the Barbican was the London base, Stratford, Newcastle. Yeah. And that was a, it was, it was a proper draw. I mean, mm. it was really something to go and see though. So when you're artistic director of the National which is <laughs> surely only a matter of time. I've been offered the job, but only if I do it as Gielgud, which is, <laughs> I mean, it's too exhausting. I've got to get my hair back. He's a stern round on straight <laughs> for every press conference. Did you know? That in the early day, because obviously the idea of the national has been around forever, yeah. but in the thirties it got a lot of the, the, some, a property was bought and also, but there was a lot of movement. Um, but um, Ralph Richardson was offered the job, and he proposed doing it with Gilgood and Olivier, and Gilgood said, "I couldn't, I couldn't work with Larry," and that was that really. Yeah. But what an extraordinary different scenario that. What a different history. A weird triumvirate. You know? It sounds like no one could work with Larry. This is one of the themes that keeps coming out in this podcast, actually. Everyone I talk to, Toby Stevens telling me extraordinary stories about his mother and his father at the hands of Florence Olivier and, you know, sort of having his career blocked, essentially, yeah. you know. And I know Richard Eyre saying he was a piece of work. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? Because you kind of, I mean, he, talking about sacred monsters, he, he clearly wasn't very nice. And, and it, in the end, it sort of, Reputationally, it sort of comes out, doesn't it? And, you know, people loved Gilgo. They loved Richardson. Mm. The three of them are so prominent in our mind. Mm. Yeah, he doesn't come out of it very well. And he's, obviously, he was utterly brilliant. And I think that the sadness, in a way, is that the, the stage performances we will never see yeah. uh, are not reflected in the films. No, that's right. And actually, interestingly, because Gilgood didn't do films forever, didn't think there was anything to it. Yes. His film career is much more interesting. Yes, that's right. Much more fun to watch. That's right. And tell me about the first time on stage. Do you, was, was, is this the workshop on the Great yeah. Fire of London? I can still remember it. Can you? It was all little mandrigals and stuff, uh, or little rounds. Buy my bread, buy my bread, fresh fish for sale, fresh fish for sale. Heavy hammer, heavy hammer, 
Heavy hammer in the blacksmith's forge. There we are. I mean, wow. the bonuses. It's never come. Easter eggs. <laughs> we got some guilt yeah. and some singing. And... <laughs> That's amazing. Do you have one of those memories that just stores these little thoughts from your... Oh, as long as it's hopeless and useless. <laughs> yes. I did it the other night, and Steve Coogan was in the other night, and we were talking about that weird, retentive, useless memory. And I... See if you remember this. This is me, thinking as usual about Dave. Dave is super. Dave could do anything. Oh, he's great. He really is. When, pow, out pops my fairy godmother with her, I'll give you three wishes routine. Wish number one is easy. Next, I wish we were both at the seaside. Come on, Dave, let's swim, I say. It's just not my scene, man, says Dave. What he really meant was he couldn't swim. Still got one wish left, remember? Meet Mike. Hello. He swims like a fish. I wish I didn't keep losing me birds. Then learn to swim, young man. Learn to swim. I don't know why I remember that public information turn in its entirety. Whereas I did. It'll never go. It'll be the last thing I I have no idea why. Goethe was saying, you'll, you'll be reciting a public information. Swimming. Was it swimming, swimming safety? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it echoed somewhere dimly within the <laughs> corridors of my childhood, but I couldn't place it. Mm. But you remembered it in its entirety. In its entirety. Like a strange poem. Yes, yes. Or a sort of Alan Bennett monologue, <laughs> as it turned out. That was extraordinary. <laughs> Getting so much more than my listeners deserve on this one. Uh. That's amazing. Do you remember when you were doing the workshop, did it strike you as a sort of oh you know like people talk about here i am this is the this is actually i don't know i remember I, like. I, I remember the fact that the, the lights were very exciting but that's like going little hunter the first time it was sort of enwrapped at you but just yeah. the smell of it and the and the darkness and then the, the blaze yeah. of light I, but i remember thinking that on stage because it was the fire that they had a flicker effect or something and that was very exciting and then in school plays obviously i remember that very well but I don't know. I remember Tim Curry saying to me when he was at school, uh, I've forgotten what he was in, but there was like a, a number one spotlight or something like that. And he did it for me. I can't do it on the, uh, in audio, but he, he stepped into it and just went, I'm home. <laughs> I don't remember ever feeling that, but but um, I just remember the, just the excitement of it. And I, I suppose always, what it always had, and the most attractive thing is, it's a little window into an adult world, isn't it? And you don't really know what it is, except that feeling, that marvellous feeling of doing a play at school for two shows, and then the incredible bond. We'll all, we'll all stay in touch the rest of our lives. And then the, how bereft you were the day after. Mm. And in a way, that's, you know, you still get those post-show blues in a way. But there's nothing like that first go at it. Yes. And uh, in those days, the, the smell of Leitner makeup and all those things it seemed to be completely a part of it in there then does it feel more powerful because you've all been through something quite difficult together i mean it's obviously as you said not carrying bricks but it's scary mm. and it's sort of few features in people's terror dreams i think i think non-actors have a terror yes it's about standing up on stage yeah, yeah because it's everybody's worst sort of nightmare yeah. to be exposed yeah. publicly and hazard yourself in front yeah. of a crowd of strangers yeah, you're right. It has that glorious, that glorious potency. Doesn't that's your first yes. element of risk? Perhaps. It's so febrile, and it's kind of yeah. And then, but then it's also you have to do it again and again and again. Yeah, you know, I was laughing uh, the other day um, when right at the end, and uh, Gilbert says, um, "I heard you just now when I was leaving the theatre, and I couldn't quite face you, and I thought I must bravery demands it, and theatre is bravery. <laughs> and sometimes you can tell how many actors are in the audience. There's this uh, yes." Yes, <laughs> where you get a slight really <laughs> yes from the, from the, the brick carriers yes. <laughs> from the uh, war correspondent yes and the miners it's very it's very good <laughs> I think it also can't be un underestimated the business of the darkness descending beginning from dark mm. I, I always think when the house lights go down that we are in a sort of childlike state again we're all sort of being born from darkness into trying to make sense of a story that's going on in front of us. And also your willing uh, willing suspension of disbelief, and that, that's a... It's, uh, no, it's, and you're hoping for the best. Mm. 
are we all really hoping that this is going to be okay? Yeah, yeah. And that we won't have to sort of yeah. sit there crossing and uncrossing our legs and looking away from the stage in disgust. Falling asleep. Falling asleep. I went through a phase when I was in my 20s. I thought I had narcolepsy. Because I used to go to this, go to the theatre and just go to sleep almost immediately. Yeah, I think there was something wrong with me. Yeah. <laughs> when was just seeing some terrible. <laughs> yes, it was a terrible run. <laughs> I remember very well. But I, I must because I'm going to forget. Otherwise, I have a story about you about audiences. We were at the same performance of a kind of Alaska at the Donmar. Yes, many years ago, and I've never forgotten this. You were sitting two rows behind me, and Penelope Wilton was in bed, in a coma on stage. Bill Nye comes on with a paperback book. Something you should remember it. And there were two Ameri elderly Americans in the front row. And this guy, you know, his big pinter paws, Bill Nye sits down with his book. And this man goes, Is it John Grisham? What? He's reading a Grisham. I got that one. And the entire British audience clenched and looked around in bewilderment. Sorry. Another pinter pause. You got the runaway jury. You're thinking, what? The other John Gray. And then you turn around and speaking for everyone, you said, oh, Chupi, why did he? Did I really? Yeah. I've never forgotten it. It still makes me laugh. Wow. But there was, it was like their American blasenas, but the entire audience became you. <laughs> this one moment. <laughs> it was just brilliant. <laughs> I've never forgotten it. Gosh, I didn't realise I'd now forgotten my role as the Donmar enforcer. <laughs> well, I, I think I was particularly sensitised to that because I knew Harold. I played for his cricket team for years. He never gave me a job. I played for ages, decades, for his cricket team. They rather inappropriately named the Gaieties after the Gaiety Theatre because he was such a psychotically competitive man, <laughs> brutally competitive bunch of people, and made in his image because he was so... He was so keen on cricket and so keen on winning much more than having a good time. But he, I was at several performances that, of, of his when he was there. You know, you, you'd think that was strong stuff for me actually speaking up for the audience. <laughs> but he would coughs, you know, famously. So will you be fucking quiet? You'd just hear from that sort of, you know, growling. Or he'd go and sort of shove people and say, shut up. You know, you think maybe... There's a play like Dear England by Gareth Southgate about Harold Pinter's cricket team, the gaieties. Well, interesting idea. I don't think you'd be the first one to suggest <laughs> it. In fact, I think several members of the gaieties have tried to sort of parlay Harold as cricketer into well, a there play. Is, there is a play. Yeah, that's right. Hampstead, isn't it? And it's him and, and um, Beckett. I think it's him and Beckett. That's exactly yeah. right. And the famous thing about them going out to the balcony at Lords and seeing this dazzling green expanse and, you know, England are batting and doing rather well. And Harold turns to Samuel Beckett and says, ah, oh, Sam, first morning of a test match, doesn't it make you feel glad to be alive? And Beckett says, well, I wouldn't go exactly that far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you go to, you, you are not from a theatrical background at all, but clearly this thing is coalescing in this unstoppable way. And you go and train at Bretton Hall, uh, where you meet... Rishi Smith, Steve Pemberton, and Jeremy Dyson, mm. who you form this legendary comedy troupe. Troupe is always a sort of say, it's you like a fashion comedy troupe. It's like the, the companions. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Called the League of Gentlemen. And so you start off your career, and tell me if I've got this slightly wrong, but you are essentially from Bretton Hall, moving out into the world as a live comedian. You were a you were a group to going to Edinburgh, winning awards at Edinburgh. But I, I suppose we all we, we always our, our heroes were all comic actors, right? So it wasn't. I mean, it's funny. It sometimes still, if I'm, it's in some biography comedian. I, I'm not really. I've never thought. I mean, I couldn't do stand up to save my life. It's not. It's, it's a totally different form and different right. skill, you know. But the people I love, like Leonard Rossiter and Alistair Sim and Ronnie Barkey, but that's what I that's what I grew up wanting to do. Right. And thinking, and also I think that and all my favorite things is uh, even when they're very funny, I uh, have a strong element of pathos mm -hmm. and drama to them. So, my favorite episode of Steptoe is the one actually weirdly with Leonard Roster, which is called The Desperate Hours, where two criminals escape from prison and they hold up in the junkyard. And uh, Leonard Roster and his cellmate is an old man, and he and Harold realize they're basically the same. 
Mm. And eventually they want to go back to prison because it's so bleak on the outside. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, there's so many episodes of Porridge, one of the greatest things ever conceived, which are proper life lessons from Fletch. And and, and it's so, those, the moments when time stands still in most sitcoms, we all remember, especially because the audience was watching them. They're, they're they're so special to me. I think I remember thinking this is how to do it. A rising damp was just incredible. Amazing. It's incredible what goes on between those four mm. brilliantly cast people and the quality of the writing. And there's a bit where um, Miss Jones says uh, her father dropped dead of a heart attack on Guy Fawkes night, and uh, when they found him, there was two and six in his hat. Not much for a man's life, Mister Rigsby. I mean, Beckett could have read that. Really? Beautiful. Really? So I, I always responded to that. and I, But I love that idea. And I think it's a terrible false equivalence of like, this is funny, yes. this is sad. Right. When we all know that what life is like and all the best things are completely mixed up. You suddenly find humor in the most unexpectedly bleak circumstances. Or you find yourself terribly moved when you, when you think you're going to be laughing. So the incredible rise of the League of Gentlemen from live performances to... Radiant, radiant, mm. radiant TV shows, a movie. Eventually, you, you didn't think of it as as anything other than acting. It was it was exactly the same form that you were pursuing from from your training at Brett Hall. Yes, yeah. all four of you were yeah. off doing this stuff in the world. It just happened to be in this form. Mm. Would you prepare for live shows? You did a live tour, didn't you, in two thousand eighteen? Oh, we've done. We did. We did a huge one, 2000, 2001, another in 2005, and then the, the reunion one was 2018. Yes. And would you prepare for it in the same way that you're going to prepare for these two shows now? You, 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 do, do you, By doing a podcast, yeah. By his right. <laughs> By warming up the instrument <laughs> with um, the question. Oh, yes, very much. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and uh, yes, absolutely. We we didn't have a director. We directed them ourselves. We just knew what to, what we wanted, to how to put the shows together, I mm-hmm. suppose. But, oh, yes, very much. And there's, you know, some, some of it is just, especially with a monologue, you, you just prepare it in the same way and mm-hmm. run through it in the same way. Right. It seems like a completely facile question. I suppose the business of not having a director is quite an interesting mm-hmm. one. You just start, have I got this right? Had you ever directed before you directed The Unfriend by uh, no. Stephen Moffat? So Stephen Moffat, your great collaborator on TV, wrote a play about a, a real encounter that had happened to a friend of his. Yes. Is that right? On a cruise? Yes, they met this very vivacious American lady and swapped emails and never thinking. And then she emailed and said, um, I'm coming to London. So they invited her to stay. And then he thought, I don't really know anything about her. So he Googled her. Then he rang his wife at work and said, are you sitting down? Elsa is coming to stay with us and the kids, yeah. He said, what's the worst thing you can imagine about? She said, what? He said, what's the worst? I've just Googled her. Don't Google her. What's the worst thing you can imagine about her? And she went, well, I don't know. She's a murderer. Yes. <laughs> she was. <laughs> she was a serial killer who'd got off on technicalities. And there was and, literally about to show up with her Louis Vuitton luggage. And and Stephen's uh, and friend told him this story on holiday. And he just, he came back half an hour later and Stephen said, can I have that? And that's how it started. Right. And, and he asked you to direct it. And did yeah. you know that you could? I mean, was there? I directed television, and I, I, right. I directed a bit of, of, of theatre at college. It never really been on my radar as well. But I just thought, I think, I, again, I sort of felt, I know, I know why this is, why this is funny. I really? know this is, and I know in my head how to make this work. Yeah. You know? So, uh, yeah, it was very, um, it was a very happy process, and uh, it's coming back. Is it to the uh, well? Great. It's going to be next door. To the motive of the queue. Oh, come on. Incredible. You have a sort of gated yes. area of London. <laughs> but I'll say, because there's a connecting corridor between the two theatres, I'm going to go through as John Gielgud and redirect them. <laughs> Did anything surprise you about directing it? Did you discover anything that you weren't expecting? I think, funnily enough, bringing this conversation full circle in terms of the benevolent dictatorship, who realised that's what you have to try and achieve, right? And it was very useful because I then directed my partner's play, The Way. Yes, who did? Which is coming to the criteria. You see? Bad. Oh, come yeah. on. For a month um, uh, in August. And I did both those back to back and then came into the movie in the queue playing John Gilbert yeah. as director. Director. Amazingly, it was strange happenstance, but it was very useful, really. I don't know. It's To me, it's the same sort of thing. It's about trying to foster 
a very happy atmosphere, but also you, you realize how um, how much work there is. And uh, I, I certainly found this when I first directed for TV. The strange thing is you suddenly realize everyone is turning you f- to you for answers all the time. Yeah. Directed them, but it's like, and particularly in the theater, I have several times found myself around the table with the actors on just, just laughing and listening to stories. Then thinking, oh, fuck, it's me. Yes. As in, <laughs> I'm on. And you say, oh, I've got, no, I can't do that. Um, and in fact, you've also got to do that difficult. Thing. Do you have to do a little officer and soldiers thing? Yes. And you have to, you have to not go to the pub with them. Yeah. Because that's important. They have to be able to let us steam and it's about you. Yeah. And that that's difficult. How was it with Ian, your husband? Because that was great. Actually, because we got to spend so much time together. But he wrote the play yeah, and yeah. was in it. Yeah. So, of course, has a version of control of it. Yeah. True. And certainly ownership of it. And was that ever complicated with you as the director? No, really, because we, I mean, the, the, there, was a, there was a point when we... I definitely, one weekend, I said, I, we have to not talk about it today. I, I need a break. Mm. I need to just do something else because uh, because inevitably you can't just go home and not talk about it. Right. But it, 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 it wasn't, it was stressful, but it wasn't, it wasn't like damaging in that way. It was just like, if I hadn't been married to the writer, mm. I would just go home and decompress. Sure. But it was largely, it was great because actually we really, we re- obviously really enjoy being together and work together and 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 it was so um it was so concentrated right it was really good fun and but it is a different it's a different thing and was, yeah. and you were working on the unfriend with your old league of gentlemen yeah. partner Rishi yeah. Smith. so these very close theatrical associations with you as director with people very dear to you and close to you which of course should be a bonus but must also be surely somewhere quite Tricky, complicated. Oh, yeah. Yes, you have differences of point. Difference. Yeah, yeah. And differences and, and of but I suppose that's how it works. Yeah. And and you, if you're not able to cope with that, yeah, you can't do it. Yeah. So you have to be able to. Sometimes you take a deep breath and think, well, I'm going to have to and take this on the chin, or I'm going to have to be firm here, or or this is a. Again, without being unpleasant, I think it's just about trying to stick to your guns about right. It. And if you have a very particular idea of how it how it should be and I know this is again it's weird because this play is so meta in every single way but the other meta part about it is the idea of of leaving the actors to it yeah. and I, I understand now why most directors disappear forever yes because it's actually quite difficult I mean you can come back and go oh no it's it's put on three minutes do this that and the other but also it has to be allowed to grow yeah but then sometimes it can grow in an unhealthy way and I found that I find that quite difficult. Coming back to a show several weeks later and just going, "Where's this come? Oh, well, this this has crept in." Yeah, and um, I thought we were playing this for the truth. <laughs> so um, some of that was that's very challenging. But equally, I suppose that's why directors move on and just go, "Well, yeah, good luck to you." Yeah, the leaving must be so complicated and strange, though. It's hard, as you were talking about earlier. You know, leaving a play as a performer. When you've got all these extraordinarily accelerated bonds with people as a director, Richard Eyre had a very good thing about it when I talked to him. He said, you think as a director when you're doing the show that you are in a Ptolemaic universe. You're the the molten center of the world. You realize the minute it opens and you leave that you're in fact in a Copernican universe. (laughs) A tiny star dying, orbiting. (laughs) That's how they're dying. Isn't that beautiful? But that's also true because I remember... um, I came from rehearsals to the after-show um, party at the end of the Unfriend run at the Criterion, three-month run, and it was lovely, but I had not been a part of it in the same way they had every night. Mm. And it is a different, it's a strange feeling. I, I had to mark it, but I knew I wasn't part of it in the same way. Well, presumably that's wonderfully informative for Gilgood because you feel his magnificently lonely sense of distance from this party, you know, literal party. He walks into a party yeah. and says, you know, I, I, I was invited, you know. Yeah. It was, it's yeah. this glorious sense that he has to leave. He can never be part of the inner circle that is But I think that was the case. I remember Simo, he was offered um, the Evening Standard Critics job. Yes, he was. And he really, you know, he would have been transformative. Yeah. But he, you can't, you can never go back. No. And that's, that's a thing. Yeah. It? Yeah. 
Very last thing, celebrity questions. <laughs> celebrity admirers of yours, your director, Sir Sam Mendes, says, ask Mark, is there any man wants cock in top? <laughs> I don't really know what that means. I told him this. I think he's, I don't think he'll ever get over this. When we, we were looking for locations for Royston Vasey for the Nicky <laughs> we went to Todmorden, which has manifest joys. And there was, the thing was, there was amazingly a memorial toilet with the face of a dead child laminated. <laughs> and I went for a wee inside it. And there was a lot of graffiti, but the scroll as if from hell in a, in a magic marker. And they called Todmorden is known as Todd. Right. Locally. It just said, is there any man wants cock in pot? But is, <laughs> is there any man wants cock in It was so desperate. <laughs> that's, that's the most erudite question Sam could ask. Yes. Uh, we're back to your public service announcement <laughs> because there's a certain poetry to There is. There is. The internal rhyme of cock and tot. <laughs> Uh, very good. I think we should leave it there. Mark, you've been so <laughs> incredibly generous. I cannot tell you how much I admire your performance in this play. It's really, it's really an extraordinary thing you do. And more than that, you really have kind of put the defibrillator on the dying chest of theatre. I feel like you are, <laughs> you are doing everything you can with this show. Everybody involved in it is, but particularly you, I think, to sort of give it the kiss of life. And it's... A wonderful thing to see. Thank you very much. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. <laughs> Is there any man wants cock in Todd? Is there any man wants cock in Todd? Isn't there a desperate... And beautiful music to that. A bit like Mark's um, public service announcement about, you know, learning to swim, which he could remember verbatim. Had to take his, you didn't see this, of course, um, audio, but he had to take his glasses off to deliver uh, with sort of full conviction. That was like a sort of tone poem wasn't it? Dredged from the memory of his youth. I thought we got a lot of bang for our buck there, don't you? That astonishing John Gielgud voice. I love a little bit of singing and some dirty, plangent toilet graffiti. I mean, what more could you want? Oh, I'm so grateful to Mark for giving me that time. And by the way, I could think of worse choices to be the new artistic director of the National Theatre. There's a sits vac there. And worse ideas than having outposts of the National all over Britain. So it is indeed truly national. Just saying. You heard it here first. Um, my guests, guests, plural, next week, are my first musical theatre guests. They are the absolute creme de la creme of Broadway composers. They are Scott Whitman and Mark Shaman, or as they are at pains to point out, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. <laughs> Mark and Scott. They are the composing duo behind Hairspray and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Sister Act and Catch Me If You Can and the new blockbuster musical on Broadway of Some Like It Hot. 
They're amazing. Please join me for that. They have an extraordinary life, an extraordinary history, and they're extraordinary people. Um, I use extraordinary too much, don't I? Somebody pointed this out to me. My friend, the novelist Susan Minot, said, if you say extraordinary all the time, it pretty much means <laughs> that it's not extraordinary because it becomes ordinary. Yeah, I just, it's one of those ones I reach for. But all these people are extraordinary. So go shove that up your pipe and smoke it, novelist Susan Minot. Anyway, Stage Door Johnny is an extraordinary production uh, by Offscript. Um, my extraordinary producer uh, is Louise Berry. Extraordinary podcast platform is Acast. Well, I'm going to stop now. Uh, my producer is Ben Backhouse. The musicians are Iggy Cake and Phoebe Cake. Thank you to the stage manager. Thank you to you for listening. I know it's the summer and maybe sitting in a theatre isn't your idea of everything it could be when you could be outside. But it's still there. Summer in the theatre can be magical. Just like Mark going to work uh, on Motive in the Queue during the summer. There's something about it, concentrating our minds and then coming back out into, into the sunshine or into unseasonable rain. It just sort of feels, feels a little illicit. When you should be outside, you're inside watching some art. All right, see you next week for Scott and Mark. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Not a lie that rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Sees play sad and funny. That's stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He knows that there's no Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.